Welcome to this episode of Toward Justice, sponsored by the Justice Network of the Free Methodist Church. I'm your host, Eric Logan. In today's podcast, we will hear from Dominique Gilliard, who shares the principles of his book, Subversive Witness, to demonstrate how biblical characters demonstrate justice and mercy. Listen in while Dominique brings the Bible to bear on justice themes. been a joy. It's also for me a great privilege to speak to ministers uh, in this moment in time, because I really believe that we are called to really reckon with the fierce urgency of now. And so as somebody who grew up in Metro Atlanta, uh, in the shadows of Dr. King, who had a father who worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference for a while, which is an association that Dr. King founded during the Civil Rights Movement, Dr. King's footprints and fingerprints are all over my faith formation. And we're actually going to launch out today talking a little bit about a couple of quotes that I think are particularly pertinent for us in this moment in time. But before we do that, I know y'all learned a little bit about my bio, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I do in my quote-unquote nine-to-five. All of us know ministry is not nine-to-five. So my job within the covenant is to be a pastor to pastors, and I help pastors make connections between scripture, biblical justice, and racial righteousness and reconciliation in the world. So I do that for approximately 900 congregations throughout North America. So when Marissa talks about the distinctive way in which I try to frame the book, it's because I get all of those rebuttals too. And I know that we need to be able to be very concise and explicit and biblically rooted in how we have these conversations about Uh, love-driven justice. And I I love that phraseology. It's not one that we use, but it is very compelling understanding of why we do what we do. And it's not because we're good people. It's not because we're ethical on our own, but we love because we were first loved. And the love that was first extended to us becomes our model and our framework for what our love should look like in the world. And so we're going to press into some of that But I'm also going to challenge us as ministers because the reality is that we really set the table. We frame these conversations for our congregation. And so there is a great responsibility for us to whom much has been entrusted. And us as leaders, we have been entrusted. Much is required. And so we're going to have some real conversations about some of the ways in which we can be more intentional about reckoning with the fierce urgency of now in our role. So Let me start off by reading a quote from Dr. King that really framed my first project, which was Rethinking Incarceration. It was a quote where Dr. King said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. When we look out at the landscape of our churches and we see young folks fleeing, we need to understand how prophetic Dr. King was in the 60s to declare this truth that is manifesting itself in our midst. When we really soberly look at why young folk are fleeing the church, 
is because they see it as an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. And we have to be willing to soberly ask the question, why is that the case? Why do people see us as irrelevant, as a social club, as something without moral or spiritual authority? One of the challenges that we're having in so many of our congregations right now is that when we try to reckon with some of the stuff that Dr. King starts to hint at in the, this quote, we're denounced as being too political, as allowing the culture to inform what we preach, as not being biblically rooted. And part of what it looks like for us to bear a faithful witness today is to be confessional about the fact that these conversations that are in the air, that all too often we're not creating space to have within our congregations, these are and always have been biblical and theological conversations. But all too often, our foreparents didn't have the integrity or the fortitude to have them or to have them well. When we talk about in our constitution, we refer to indigenous people as merciless Indian savages. That is a conversation about the Imago Dei. That is a conversation about a biblical truth that's revealed to us in the first pages of scripture. And if the church didn't have the integrity or the fortitude to bear witness to that in that time, that doesn't mean that that conversation is just a political conversation. That was a biblical theological conversation that we should have had and we didn't have it. And in not having it, we surrendered our moral and spiritual authority to the world and allowed them to inform how that conversation has been formed and shaped and dictated in our society. That was always our place. That was always our conversation. When we allowed black people to be enslaved, to be legally constituted as property, to be counted as three fifths of a person, that is a conversation that is biblical and theological. That is not just a political conversation. When we allowed our Asian American sisters and brothers to be excluded from our country in the Chinese Exclusionary Act, or rounded up and incarcerated through the Japanese internment camps, these are conversations that are rooted in Genesis. But the fact that we didn't have them and we neglected them and we shied away from what we should have been prophetically leading out on for so long, the church doesn't recognize these as biblical and theological conversations. They recognize them as the conversations that have been had, which are outside the four walls of our congregations. And so when we try to step in and recapture them now, without confession, without lament, and without repentance, people think we are conforming to the world and allowing the world to dictate what was always our conversation. We have to lead out with integrity. And in this moment, that means being confessional. That means lamenting the sin that we have allowed to be immersed within the status quo of our nation, our culture, our customs, our legislation. We have to lament that. And then we have to commit ourselves to repentance. And repentance is turning away from the way we've been silent about these things. Repentance is not being willing to be silent anymore. So I was being interviewed by my sister, my friend, Latasha Morrison recently for the work that she does with the Be The Bridge Network. And at the end of our interview, she says, one of the things I always do when I interview ministers is I ask, 
what are you lamenting about today? Like, what's a lament that's heavy on your heart? And a lament that's heavy on my heart right now for the church, there's many, but the one I'm going to hone in on right now is the fact that in too many congregations, we are allowing the disobedience of our members to dictate the gospel that we proclaim on Sundays. We are too afraid to speak the word that the spirit is welling up amongst us, within us, because we are afraid of the ways that our disobedient congregations are going to push back on us. We can't allow the gospel that we proclaim to be dictated for what our members are ready for on their own terms. We are called to disciple people into faithfulness, not to acquiesce to their disobedience. That's easier said than done. I know that. So this ain't just about having some nice one-liners. But we also have to reckon with, if that's the kind of congregation we're in, what does it look like for us to faithfully move the needle? The same things that we can't say today shouldn't be the same things that we can't say in two or three years. How do we do the intentional, strategic, biblical work of moving folks from disobedience into faithfulness to Jesus? This is the kind of stuff that we really have to reckon with. And it, it entails how we preach, how we teach, how we disciple, how we worship. If we're not framing these conversations for folk as biblical, theological conversations, they're not going to recognize it as such. Because, again, we haven't led out in the way that we should have been leading out in this. Let me read another quote from Dr. King. He says, any religion that professes to be concerned about the souls of men and is not concerned about the slums that damn them, the economic conditions that strangle them, and the social conditions that cripple them is a spiritually morbid religion awaiting burial. There are people who are watching us and they are hoping that something different is possible. But when we are paralyzed in our witness and more concerned about trying to stay above the political fray rather than living faithfully in response to the gospel, they are disappointed in what they see. There is nothing distinctive about who we are. We have lost our saltiness and the world has recognized that. Our children have recognized that. I can't tell you how many ministers I'm walking alongside of who are lamenting the fact that their kids have stopped following Jesus because their kids don't see us engaged in the things that are informing our communities that are causing trauma and pain and oppression in the world. They want to believe that the gospel is bigger than what we're proclaiming. And we have an opportunity to form our congregations in a countercultural vision of what can be. I think when we shrink back from these conversations, we make the gospel too small. We don't cling to the belief that the gospel truly is the hope for the world, that God is still active and at work reconciling brokenness in our midst that we have the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit at work within us and it's waiting to be unleashed within people who believe that it has that power today. So I'm going to end with that part with one more reflection from Dr. King. And this is a reflection on the Good Samaritan. And he says, like the Good Samaritan, we must always stand ready to descend to the depths of human need. The person who fails 
to look with compassion upon the thousands of individuals left wounded by life's many roadsides is not only unethical, but ungodly. Every Christian must play the Good Samaritan, but there is another aspect of Christian social responsibility, which is just as compelling. It seeks to tear down unjust conditions and build anew instead of just patching things up. It seeks to clear the Jericho Road of its robbers as well as the victims of the robbery. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's a lot easier to preach and teach and disciple folks into compassion and mercy than it is into justice. We're great at compassion. We're pretty good at mercy. But when we start to talk about structures and systemic change and advocacy, that's when we get a little nervous. Does the scripture really say that? Jesus didn't start any kind of revolutions or try to dismantle systems and structures. Is that really what we're commissioned to be? And when we take that approach, I believe we limit the ways in which God can work in and through us because our imaginations are too small. Our witness is too tame. Our ethic is too domesticated. See, scripture is clear about this one thing, many things, but this one thing. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus gives us a new commandment. And in this new commandment, he says that by how we love one another is how the world will know that we belong to him. Right now in the church, there's a lot of theories about how the world will know that we belong to Jesus. A lot of people believe that the world will know that we belong to Jesus through us engaging in cultural wars. A lot of people believe the world will know that we belong to Jesus by what we stand against. But this passage is clear that the world will know that we belong to Jesus by how we choose to love one another. And I think that there are few opportunities to bear witness to the fact that we belong to Jesus and to love one another intentionally and sacrificially the way that Jesus first loved us. Like we get a chance to do when we see oppression, injustice, and systemic sin thwarting the shalom that God created God's children to enjoy. And it's not happening directly to us. You see, we live in a world right now that tells us that we only have to be concerned about oppression and injustice when it directly impacts us. When it happens to us and our own or people we see ourselves as identified with. But when we actually see oppression and injustice infringing upon shalom and the the flourishing that God created all of God's children to enjoy, and we choose to opt in when the world tells us we have the privilege of opting out. You know what we start to look like? We start to look like the incarnation. And the fact that Jesus had opportunity to stay in heaven and the shalom of heaven. But love compelled him to enter in. Love compelled him to not stand on the sideline and say, oh, that's pretty jacked up. I just, I'm going to pray about that and hope better for them. Jesus entered in, and while we don't enter in as saviors, let me be explicitly clear about that, it becomes a missional model for us, that when we see harm happening to our brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the commission to be an interconnected body is a commission to understand that their pain is our pain, 
That hurt is my hurt. And I no longer should respond in the pattern of this world, which says I don't have to be concerned because it's not happening to me. I had a seminary professor who explained it to me this way. He said, everything in this world teaches us that blood is thicker than water. He said, that is everything outside of the scriptures. The scriptures actually tell us that the baptismal waters are more powerful than our ancestral bloodlines. And it's baptism must, that what must redefine who our family is as the people of God. And when you think about the lessons that you were taught by your parents about how you and your brother, you and your sister, y'all can fight and argue, but don't let nobody else talk bad about your brother or sister. Like when you have family who's going through something, you, you, you knuckle up and you buckle down and you get into the muck and the mire and you advocate for family. You work it out for family. But we don't see each other as family in this country. We don't see each other as interconnected across all of these lines of division that the world has created for us. And so when we see sin and oppression impacting our neighbor, we're pretty apathetic about it because we don't see ourselves as belonging to one another in the way that the gospel commissions us to. The gospel commissions us to be a new people with a new story, with a new family. And how we step up and show up for our family matters. And when we don't, sin is able to run amok. And division is a constant reality all around us. And when that happens, we are so tempted to walk by sight instead of by faith. And when we walk by sight, we live as if the powers and the principalities are too strong to be combated. We live as if racial division, patriarchy, classism, all of these things are things that we can do nothing about. And it's not true, sisters and brothers. The gospel is littered with stories of God's ability to break toxic cycles of bigotry, patriarchy, classism, ethnocentrism. All of these things are things that God is inviting us to participate and demonstrate as co-laborers in the good work. And so I wanna unpack a little of this for us tangibly. And before I go there, there's a quote from a theologian by the name of Daniel Grudy that's really helpful. He says, God's concern for the poor and the oppressed is one of the most central themes of the Bible. In the New Testament, one out of every 16 verses is about the poor. In the gospels, the number is one out of every 10. In Luke's gospel, it is one out of every seven. And in James, it is one out of every five verses. Grudy goes on to say, from a Christian perspective, whenever a community ceases to care for the most vulnerable members of society, its spiritual integrity falls apart. You see, this is deeply biblical work. And we have to be able to cast a vision for our members to help them to understand that. And part of how that happens is how we preach and how we teach and how we exegete the scriptures. And so in this book, Subversive Witness, one of the things I really try to do is I try to press into questions that I know are felt questions within the church that we oftentimes choke down and don't give voice to. I wanted to wrestle with questions like, what make good people complicit with systemic sin? 
Why do they go along with it? Not everybody who acquiesces is an evil person. There are good, moral, church-going people who go along with stuff. Why is that the case? What does scripture have to say about it? What does it mean for us to preach a biblical text that puts too much emphasis on one element of the story and neglects other aspects? One of the things that really drove some of my engagement with scripture was I started to notice that there was this theme throughout the text where there were all of these passages that I was super familiar with, but I had never been charged in the church to go back and actually examine what they might actually have to do for my adult life and my ethical engagement in the world. There were stories that honestly were reduced to children's Sunday school passages. But these passages had so much to say to us about what does it mean to live faithfully in an unjust world. Passages like the birth of Moses in Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10. Passages like Paul and Silas when they go to jail in Acts 16. Passages like the story of Esther and what that might mean. And I started to notice that we actually are complicit with what we're trying to fight against through how we preach and teach these passages. So for example, when we talk about the story of Exodus, when we celebrate the life, legacy, and ministry of our brother Moses, but we don't acknowledge the fact that Moses is only brought forth to become the leader that he is because of the faithfulness of women, we contribute to a church that has a patriarchal blind spot. When we don't acknowledge that it was women who had no status, no social standing in society, who were willing to hear and disobey a direct order from the most powerful person in the land, we don't empower folks who don't see themselves as having status or influence or power in society to discern what it might look like for them to bear a faithful witness where they are called. When we don't press into the text and see the way in which Moses' mom was in an impossible situation, she's living in a land that literally says she must kill her son just because of his gender and his ethnic identity. Now, see how those two are connected, i.e. intersectionality? You know, this horrible word that the church should be afraid of right now? It's in the scriptures. But she is in this impossible situation where she either must put her son to death or disobey the law. And when we think about the way, let me not put this on you. When I think about the way that I was brought up and I was formed, I was discipled to think that you always, without question, blindly follow the law. But there is a biblical witness that counteracts that truth. And when we aren't willing to name that and help our members to realize that there are going to be times where there is a rub between faithfully following Jesus and being a good citizen of a worldly empire, we become complicit with the things that we're trying to deconstruct. When we don't press into this text and we don't realize the power of God that's manifested when Pharaoh's daughter is the person used by the spirit of God to help bring liberation to Moses in the midst of the murderous decree that was in the land. 
We miss a precious opportunity to help our people to see that the gospel has the power to break generational cycles of bigotry. That the gospel has the power to transform the, the vision and the witness and the ethic of somebody that close to someone who is preaching and, and indoctrinating their children into this cycle of violence, this cycle of seeing one another as expendable people, exposable people, people who are only good for subjugation and exploitation. The gospel still has that power today. But you know, some of us have people in our churches who come from families where bigotry was normative, and they don't think that they can actually be liberated from that. They don't think that the gospel has the power to free them from that. And so they shrink away from these conversations or don't think that this part of the gospel is for them. They see it as optional for certain people who are passionate about those things, but they don't see it as part of the, the, what's core to what it means to faithfully follow Jesus in our racially divided world. We miss out on opportunities. When we preach about Esther, and we're not willing to reckon with the exploitation of Vashti, we are complicit with creating a system and a culture within our church that turns a blind eye to sexual exploitation. When we look at the news and we see all of these, all of these stories of ministers and parishioners who are involved in sexual exploitation and violence, and we don't think that there's a connection between what we're preaching and what we're overlooking, we're fooling ourselves. When we preach passages about David and we only celebrate him as a man after God's own heart, and we don't reckon with the sexual coercion that he enforces himself on, on Bathsheba, and then after his repentance, we celebrate his repentance, but we don't reckon with the fact that he didn't go back and do the work he should have been doing by discipling his son into a new way of being to not replicate the toxic masculinity that he, he displays, and therefore Tamar has to pay the price for it. We are complicit through what we're preaching and what we're choosing not to preach. We need to be making these connections for our people if we're going to actually expect them to be ambassadors of reconciliation who understand the depths and the breadths of the brokenness that they're called to reconcile. We're having all these conversations right now about critical race theory, about are these conversations conversations that are one factual, which I don't know why we're even having that conversation. And then we're having conversations about should the church be engaged in this in any way, shape or form. A passage that's important for me that really starts to inform my way of thinking about the mission and the role of the church in this conversation is when we see Jesus in Luke 4 give his mission statement. And as people you know, our lives are supposed to be patterned after our crucified and resurrected Lord and Savior. Jesus says part of his mission is to give sight to the blind. I think the way that we have exclusively interpreted that historically is that Jesus, you know, spits on his hand and throws some mud on some people's face, wipes it away, and they can see. But when we take seriously Jesus's words that the church will go on to do even greater things than what he was able to do during his time here on earth, then I think we need to look at Jesus's mission statement and ask how it applies for us in our time. And part of what I think it means for us is being willing to take a step back and take a sober look at society and to see where blindness is being produced and reproduced. 
And one of the places that undeniably blindness is being produced and reproduced is through our educational systems. We have lived in this society long enough to know what's being taught and what's not being taught. There is a great four-part lecture series on critical race theory that I would encourage all of you to take some time to listen to by a professor out of Wheaton College by the name of Dr. Nathan Cartagena. You can find it on the Gravity Leadership Podcast. But one of the things that he talks about is this concept of organized forgetting. Organized forgetting is this concept where he tries to look at all of what we know to be true definitively in history, but we make conscious decisions to suppress that truth or remove that truth in the same way that ministers who are trying to legitimate theologically slavery and oppression distorted the Bible in what came to be known as the slave Bible, where they took out all of the passages about God's liberating acts on behalf of the oppressed, God's solidarity with the least of these, God's movement of freedom in the world. There is an organized forgetting that is at play within our communities, our congregations, and our schools. And if we are willing to take a sober look at society and to see how that is actually disempowering us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, then we need to realize that we have a role in rectifying that problem. We have a role in giving our members eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to respond to the brokenness that exists in the world. That is the only way that we can faithfully live into our commission to be repairers of the breach to be co-laborers with Christ, ambassadors of reconciliation. Without understanding the depth of the brokenness that we're called to reconcile, we will always respond to calls for biblical justice as, eh, maybe. Maybe that's for some people. But really what I'm supposed to be doing is saving souls. Is I'm supposed to be bringing people into the kingdom and in that theology, we bear witness to the fact that we don't understand scripture because scripture is explicitly clear. Evangelism and justice were always meant to go together. But in too many of our congregations, if we're honest, we prioritize one at the detriment of the other. And a story like, well, there's passages like Acts 6, 1 through 7, that show us why that's so problematic. And hint, you'll be able to unpack that in the book. And then, but go back to Jesus's commandment, new commandment to us. It says, by this, the world will know that you are my disciples. So when we step out on faith and we radically and sacrificially love one another, it's not just that we love one another, but the world starts to recognize that we belong to Jesus. And when they start to recognize that there's something distinctive about who we are, the world will start to ask, what is compelling you to live and love in that way? And that's when we get to share the good news. That's when we get to say, it's not because of who I am. It's because of the fact that I have died and that Christ now lives in and through me. And there is a power at work within me that takes me beyond my own human limitations. You see, that's where justice and evangelism are coupled and they are wed, and that is consistent biblical witness. But we have deconstructed it and we have bought into a false gospel that's an either or when it's always been about the both and. 
So many folks in our congregations are scared about justice because they think it's works righteousness or they think that it's some secular agenda. We have to recapture the both and of scripture. We have to proclaim the vision of the both and, and that's what's going to take us to the next level. I want to give you one more example of a story where we have watered down the both and. We're going to go to Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. And this passage is a passage, you ever have one of those passages that just, it grips you and you, you can't shake it. I've been gripped by this passage for about the last five years. And I think the reason why I've been so gripped by it is that this is a passage for such a time as this, but I haven't heard hardly any churches preaching it. When we talk about the violence of George Floyd, when we talk about the systemic realities of our criminal justice system that is all but just, when we talk about police brutality and all these things, racial targeting, when we talk about all these realities that are going on in the world, this stuff is in the text, y'all. But one of the reasons why so many of our members struggle to read the Bible is because they think that it's an archaic book that has no relevance for our day and time. And part of our role as ministers is to, to denounce that as not true and to help them to realize how scripture actually still is a lamp unto our feet and a guide for our path. And when we press into this passage in Acts 16, it's really a story about what is akin to not the same because they didn't have police in that time, but akin to police brutality, systemic injustice, and a criminal justice system that's more concerned with profiteering than it is with being just. So Paul and Silas go and they're out and about on their way to worship and they encounter this demon-possessed woman who's being exploited by these powerful men who are using her to get rich. They, in encountering her, realize what's happening, and they liberate her from the demon that's possessing her. The men are outraged because the text says they realize that their hope for making money has, is gone. And so the text says they drag them into the city square, which also doubles as the judicial center. And scripture's trying to tell us something there. The city square, the marketplace, doubles as the place where justice is supposed to be had but justice is not being made manifest. And when they take them and they bring them before the magistrates, these powerful men don't only charge them with what scripture says, throwing the city into an uproar, which is another clue, which means it's not just these two powerful men who are making money, but there's a whole inner web of oppression that's connected underneath the surface. And the whole city is complicit with the exploitation of vulnerable people like this woman. And when they go and they bring charges before the magistrates, they don't just say that these men liberate this woman. They also ethnically identify them as Jews. And this is important because in Rome, there is an obvious anti-Semitism that's at work. Because as soon as they ethnically identify them as Jews, the text said the crowd starts to participate in their, their persecution and that they're stripped and flogged before they are denied access to a trial because of their ethnic identity, because of the, the xenophobia that is alive and well within Rome. And these men knew it. And so they were dog whistling 
dog whistle politics, what we see every day on our nightly news. This is what these men do. And in doing so, they unleash the crowds repress xenophobia. And then when they're denied access to a trial, they're falsely incarcerated. Later that night, the magistrates realized that they actually were set up. That Paul and Silas are not Jews, but they're actually Roman citizens. And the text says, when they realized that they were Roman citizens, they became concerned. You see, the text is bearing witness to the fact that in a fallen world, there are going to be systems and structures that operate in a way that affirm the humanity, dignity, and personhood of certain people above and against others. The text is bearing witness to the fact that within a fallen world, there are gonna be judicial systems that care more about nationalism than they do justice. There are going to be judicial systems that are going to be steeped in sin that in our case in the US care more about profiteering than delivering justice to people. And this text is critical in the fact that it actually gives us tangible instructions about what the people of God are supposed to do in the face of such a system. So the judge, tells the jailer to let them out at the crack of dawn when there's no accountability and there's no witnesses. So no one will know what has actually transpired. So the judge goes and tells Pilate and Silas, the magistrate said that you can go, go and be free and leave the city, basically. And Paul says, they beat us publicly, they humiliated us publicly. No, let them come and release us. Paul is trying to now yield his Roman citizenship to shine light on the systemic sin that the Roman judicial system is mired in. Paul, as a Roman citizen, is somebody that the system was working for. Paul, in responding this way, bears witness to the fact that he knew all along, all he had to say is, I'm actually not a Jew, I'm a Roman citizen, and this persecution would have ended, and his, the trial would have went fundamentally differently. But Paul also knew that it would have been unfaithful for him as a follower of Jesus Christ to live in a society where the justice system was just just for some people and not all people. So Paul prophetically lives into Philippians 2 and takes on the mindset of Christ and shares in Christ's suffering to actually bring about systemic accountability and transformation so that the Roman judicial system that has been mired and rooted in systemic sin can be deconstructed and reconstructed in a way that's just for all. Paul recognizes the power of privilege and he realizes that our privilege has a missional purpose. And it's not for us to exploit it for our own selfish benefit, but it's actually for us to strategically use to advance the kingdom and to sacrificially love our neighbors. Paul steps in and endures the treatment that his immigrant neighbors would have had to endure anytime they got involved in the legal system in Rome. And he prophetically bears witness to who and whose he is through his countercultural choice. Paul could have turned a blind eye to the entire system because, again, it worked for him. Paul and Silas had no need to do what they did, but the love of God compelled them to. So when we're talking about love-driven justice, this is the kind of vision that we need to give our people. 
that God's love has to compel us to do radical, countercultural, sacrificial things that allow us to be the transformative presence in the world the scripture commissions us to be. It's not enough to be compassionate. It's not enough to show mercy. We have to be people who are pursuing justice. Scripture is clear about this. Micah, what are we commissioned to be? What is required of us? To love mercy, to walk humbly, to do justice. And when we know that we live in a sinful society that treats some people better than other people because of different elements of their embodiment, and we turn a blind eye and choose to cross by on the other side, we are not bearing witness to who and whose we are. We are living like the rest of the world. We are bearing witness to the fact that we have conformed to the patterns of this world and that the spirit has not yet renewed our minds. This is not a conversation about being culturally relevant. This is a conversation about being biblically faithful. And when we don't help our members to see that, we end up being complicit in the things that we're working to deconstruct. There is power in the word of God, and we need to get reconnected to the source. And we need to help our people see the ways in which scripture truly is a blueprint for what it means to us to bear a faithful witness in our day and time. The mission of the people of God is to make God's name known and God's love shown throughout the world. It is that simple. And when we choose to shrink back from the controversial issues of our day and time, we are not making God's love shown and people will not know that we belong to Jesus. Instead of being afraid of what's out there, I will encourage us to see it as a missional opportunity to bear witness to who and whose we are through how we choose to enter in and how we choose to live and love in this watershed moment. God is desiring to be at work within the church, but we have to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus and stop being so afraid. We have to believe that the spirit that's compelling us is the same spirit that will sustain us, that God has a mission for the church. And we know that ultimately, the thing that helps me when I feel afraid, I have a friend that talks about do it afraid. I think more pastors need to realize we got to do it afraid. But the thing that helps me is we know the end of the story. It's not like we just trying to do this in and of our own power. We already know the end of the story. God is just asking us to faithfully play our part. And as we play our part, we encourage other people to play their part. And as we continue to do this, the synergy starts to grow and we establish kingdom pressure points where we can actually topple unjust systems and structures and we get a chance to prophetically speak into them as they're recreated. What was helpful for me in this is I got a chance to hear Michelle Alexander lecture and she was talking about the criminal justice system. And she said, you know, there was once a time in this country when people thought that slavery was too big of a system to ever topple it. But she said, enough people showed up and were faithful and did their part. And that encouraged enough people to join the fight. And as more and more synergy grew, you know what? We were able to end that oppressive system that no one thought could be ended. Going to the Jim Crow era, people never thought Jim Crow was gonna be ended. But the same thing happened. And we have to have that same belief as we go out today. With that prophetic zeal, we can change the world. 
but we have to believe that it's possible. And the other thing is that we have to believe that God still has the power to transform broken systems, structures, and people. And I'll just end with this. Brian Stevenson said, when we talk about our judicial system, we have to believe that God still has the power to transform Saul's into Paul's today. And when we look at our brothers and sisters behind bars, most of us don't really believe that they can become Paul's. And when we lack that belief, it shows in our witness and our ministry to our sisters and brothers. We can't authentically love people from a distance. We can't authentically love people that we're afraid of. We got to do the hard internal work of the ways in which we have slowly but surely conformed to the patterns of this world. And we think just like everybody else around us. And we are not bearing witness to who and whose we are through how we choose to live and love. So, God, I'd just like to thank you for this opportunity to commune with my sisters and brothers. I thank you for the way in which we belong to each other beyond denominational lines beyond all of the social stratifications of this world, I like to pray and ask that you give us this vision for what does it mean to be yours, to live in a way that we know that your gospel is true in the midst of harsh realities that make us doubt it. Doubt is a part of our faith, but we know that you are bigger than our doubts, that you are capable to transform our doubts into fuel for the fight. And I pray and ask, that you bless my brothers and sisters and that you sustain them and you help them be a countercultural community that can lean on one another when they're having these hard moments, when they're, when they're facing resistance and that you give them the prophetic words to speak life into one another and to affirm and pray and intercede on behalf of one another as we try to strive towards faithfulness because of your faithfulness. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening today, and we hope that you'll join us for our next episode when we will be joined by Dr. Junia Howell for a discussion on how we remember history and the effect of these collective memories on our present-day realities. Meanwhile, what are your next steps to take you toward justice? As Dominique described people in the Bible using their privilege to bring justice to their world, is there a way you could leverage your privilege to change yours? If you have an example to share, you can click the tab on our podcast and leave us a voice message. Please share this episode with those you want to engage in our justice work. And remember to consider our next summit. Look for details at justicenetworkfmc.org slash justice-summit. We look forward to having you back next time as we work together toward justice.